Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member special access to cool events behind the scenes footage and so much more plus you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon it's in you please be in it visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now that's podcast with an s thanks from kqed I'm Erica Cruz Guevara, and welcome to The Bay, local news to keep you rooted. Back in April, when an armed security guard shot and killed an unhoused trans man named Banco Brown for allegedly stealing $14 worth of food, it opened up a familiar wound in San Francisco. We heard the kind of calls of pain and outrage that you hear when police kill someone on the job. Release the tapes, file charges, and justice for Banco Brown. I'm here to tell you all today that what is reckless and unethical is setting precedent that you can walk away free after the murder of a black, trans, unhoused, and poor individual. Banco Brown's family claims in a civil lawsuit that his death was negligent and wrongful. That's in part because, unlike police, security guards in California aren't trained on de-escalation and use of force. What is the advice being given to these guards? What are the requirements they're being held to by their employers? And what I found out through you know this reporting and talking to folks in the industry is that there is a lot of confusion. Today, what California is doing to regulate and train security guards across the state and where we're at in implementing it. Hi, I'm Sasha Coca, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse, golden state. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. The land of milk and honey, that's where you go to Sunshine State, but we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio. It was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, 
Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening and thank you for your support. In 2019, there had been an event at the Golden One Arena in Sacramento. Marisa Lagos is a politics and government correspondent for KQED. She's also the co-host of the Political Breakdown podcast. And around 3.30 in the morning, a man named Mario Matthews walked into the arena and was essentially running around the basketball court pretending to dribble a basketball. He ended up being tackled by security guards, according to his family's lawsuit, and they uh, allegedly pinned him down with, you know, a knee on his neck for about four minutes. Police arrived and continued to detain him, and he actually died a few days later at a hospital. Hmm. I mean, that's uh, terrible, and I feel like even more chilling now in this sort of post-George Floyd era. Historically, what has training looked like for security guards? Is it at any level the same as what police do to train? Not at all. Until 2004, it was actually very, very easy to get what they call your guard card. This is like the state license that anybody is going to need to become a security guard. You basically took a written test. Starting in 2004, though, the state legislature did enact a bill that required more extensive training, all of it online. The video that follows was created for the California Commission on Peace Officer Standards and Training. It included some information about powers of arrest and things like that. Um, But a lot of that bill that enacted that and the regulations was really focused on things like WMDs, weapons of mass destruction. So about four hours of the training is actually dedicated to that. The types of weapons that a terrorist can use are introduced in detail in the next chapter. Let's list the three main kinds. Conventional weapons such as guns, explosives, and incendiary devices. Chemical and biological agents. Nuclear weapons and radiological And really since then we've seen no changes in almost 20 years in the way that security guards are required to be trained. Um, I should mention that if you are going to carry a firearm, there's separate training you have to get to have that license. So there is some training, but none of it is, I think, the things we think about now that are pretty commonly included in police training, including appropriate use of force, de-escalation techniques, you know, these things that are meant to help somebody avoid a violent conflict from the beginning. And if somebody engages them physically, you know, keeps both the, in this case, security guard um, and the member of the public as safe as possible. It sounds like the training is incredibly outdated. It doesn't include training on things like de-escalation and to some maybe arguably leads to the kind of thing that happened at the Golden One Center. So how did what happened at the Golden One Center eventually inspire legislation? Yeah, so this bill that actually passed in 2021 and was signed by Governor Gavin Newsom. And what it does is creates really specific training requirements for security guards, including eight hours of training in the exercise of the appropriate use of force. It really goes on to 
detail what that training needs to look like, the limitations, responsibilities, and ethics involved in making a citizen's arrest, which is what these guards are doing because they're not law enforcement, uh, the restrictions that exist on searches and seizures, the criminal and civil liabilities that can arise from an altercation with the public. Much like I think what we've now seen in the San Francisco Walgreens matter. That's why this bill was important. Assemblymember Chris Holden is a Democrat from Pasadena, and he uh, has served in the legislature for quite some time. He decided that it was time to take a look at this training and update it. That leads to a loss of life. It just seemed to be so senseless. And, then we and I think especially on. given the context we're in in California, you know, we have seen an increase in property crimes, you know, especially shoplifting in some regions. We're increasingly seeing private businesses and property owners rely on security guards. And so Assemblymember Holden kind of saw that and realized that in order to keep the public safe, he wanted to update these regulations um, and require some different types of training. So the bill was written for the purposes of putting private security guards in a situation where they are better trained to address these issues. And even well, you mentioned this law went into effect in January, but since then there has been the killing of Banco Brown by an armed security guard at a Walgreens in San Francisco. Um, how far are we as a state in implementing this law? I know these things usually take a while, right? Yeah, although I was surprised. I mean, we started looking into this because of Banco Brown's death. Um, And even though it did take effect in January and the state has had several years uh, to create these regulations, the state agency in charge of this is just starting to promulgate those regulations now. That's a whole process laid out by law. So it requires, you know, them to come up with some proposals and then it opens up to public comment. So stakeholders, um, including the security industry and guards themselves, you know, can weigh in. Where does the fact that we're sort of still waiting for this law to fully come into effect for these security officers to like get all the training that they need, where does that leave these security guards in the meantime, especially in the wake of another, you know, killing by a, an armed security guard in San Francisco? Yeah, I mean, this is something I wanted to be really sensitive about as I started this reporting, because at the end of the day, you know, you do have obviously members of the public, um, in this case, Banco Brown, Mario Matthews, who died um, after these interactions. And as I said, you had this sort of proliferation of guards protecting stores like Walgreens, the Safeways. Um, if you're in any big city in California, I think it's pretty recognizable. So yeah, it made me kind of wonder, like, what what is the advice being given to these guards? What are the requirements they're being held to by their employers? And what I found out through, you know, this reporting and talking to folks in the industry is that there is a lot of confusion and I think not a lot of protection um, for these men and women. their rights and protections are very different than a law enforcement officer. You know, we have something called qualified immunity in the United States, which largely prevents any police officer from being sued in civil court for an action they undertook uh, while they were on duty. 
Unless an officer does something incredibly egregious, they're really shielded from civil liability. We've obviously had an ongoing public conversation about criminal liability. It's not to say a police officer cannot be charged, but it is far less likely uh, that they would be in, you know, a use of force incident, I think, than, you know, somebody in a security setting. And I mean, who's often doing these jobs, Marisa, as security guards? I don't have exact numbers for California, but I know some national figures uh, do show that a lot of security guards um, and surveillance officers tend to be people of color. You know, I think in California, this is a job that you can do without a college degree. But, you know, it's an hourly wage job. It does tend sometimes to attract people who have been in law enforcement or the military before. So you do, you do see some of that. But in general, you know, this is not a super high paid profession. These are not people who are making a ton of money to be on the front lines of increasingly what looks like sort of our bigger societal challenges. Well, let's talk about that a little bit more, including the sort of pressures uh, that some of these guards are under, especially in recent years, uh, because I imagine between all the fuss about crime in downtown San Francisco and even just like the nation more broadly, that these security guards at these retail stores are under a lot of pressure. Can you talk a little bit more about the kind of pressures that security guards seem to be under right now in particular? One thing that really surprised me in my conversations was to learn that in most cases, the companies themselves don't actually provide the equipment that we would think is sort of what you need to do the job. So in his interview with police officers, Michael Earl Wayne Anthony, the guard at Walgreens, um, talked about kind of the equipment he carried and what he did and didn't have on him. He said that he would normally or in the past have had pepper spray, but it had actually been taken away from him a few years ago because somebody thought a police officer thought he was impersonating a security guard. And when the police asked him, like, how long ago did it get confiscated? He said three years ago. And, you know, they asked, well, you never replaced it. And he said, well, all the equipment we have, we invest in ourselves. He basically said the only thing the company provides the guards is a T-shirt. And so I think that there's a lot of sort of onus being put on these often low paid workers to, you know, make sure that they are prepared in a way uh, for the job they're being expected to do by these large companies um, that, you know, ostensibly are benefiting from their work. You know, I mentioned before, I think that there's a lot of confusion and back and forth over what the right process should be for these civilian guards. Is it that they should actually physically intervene when somebody is walking out of a store and they think that they're shoplifting? Is, you know, a small amount of property worth that potential violent interaction? Well, I know you actually talked with a security guard yourself about what it's like to be a security guard and the distinctions that he makes between himself and uh, police officers uh, when he's actually working. Can you tell me a little bit about this guy and, and what he says about these distinctions between his job as a security guard and that of a police officer? 
I spoke to one security guard who's worked in the Bay Area for about two years. When I first started, the only training I had to do was, uh, well, I had to get my guard card. And all that training is on. He did not want us to use his name because he's not allowed to speak to the press uh, under his job. You know, he wants to make clear to the public that he is not a police officer. He is a security guard. He will do what he can. And, and I'm very proud to say that I'm not a police officer. Like, you know, no, I'm just security. I'm not police. I don't want to be police. You know, he's not going to put himself in physical risk. I mean, he said to me, you know, that his job every day is to come home safe. I'm coming home. That's, that's my first priority. I'm coming home. Second priority is I'm not getting fired. So, but, I, you know, I'm, I'm coming home. It's not necessarily just to protect the property of what is often a, you know, multi-million dollar corporation like Walgreens. You know, in the case of Michael Anthony, the security guard accused of shooting Binko Brown, he lost his job. He's facing a civil lawsuit. And the company lost that contract with Walgreens. That's something that he brought up, you know, that this is these types of situations are going to have an impact on the entire industry. So what role do these companies have to play when security guards hurt people on the job? That's a really interesting question. I I don't know that we fully know. I mean, I think that that will potentially be part of the civil case, right? But in general, these are the employers. They are giving, it sounds like sometimes daily, definitely weekly kind of guidance to their network of security guards. And it's, you know, sounds like in this case, this company had likely in response to frustration from Walgreens or their, you know, the contractor that subcontracted them Alliance, they had changed their guidance to say, hey, we want to be more hands on. Um, the actual details of what they told their guards was essentially if you know for certain that somebody is trying to leave a store with stolen goods, then and only then should you physically engage them or, you know, engage them and try to stop them. One person might react to that by like putting the goods back on the shelves and walking out. Another might react um, the way we saw on the tape of Banco Brown. And so I think you have, you know, basically people sitting in an office telling guards to change their behavior. But there's this X factor, which is the public. At the end of the day, we are still talking about a tragedy in which someone was killed for trying to feed themselves. I mean, why do you think it was important, though, to report on this particular story? Yeah, I mean, I knew that in the wake of Banco Brown's death that there would be a lot of attention being paid to the specific security firm, to Walgreens, to the district attorney who decided not to charge the security guard. But I was sort of interested in the more systemic question of like, how are we handling this? This does not happen in a vacuum. Michael Anthony, the security guard in the Banco Brown shooting, is not the only person in this situation. So I thought it was really important to kind of come at it from that 30,000 foot view and ask this question, like, what is the state doing to protect both guards and the public? 
How can we make this system better? And I think, you know, that this training seems to be a step in the right direction. But I I still think there's going to be more conversations ahead. I think that this is something that we're going to increasingly rely on as a society. And that means that we all need to look at kind of what are the rules governing this industry and how can we do better to make everybody safer um, and to ensure that when a guard leaves their house and a member of the public does, that they don't end up in a situation like we saw with Banco Brown. Well, Marisa, thanks so much for uh, joining us on the show and breaking this down. I appreciate it. My pleasure. That was Marisa Lagos, a politics correspondent for KQED and co-host of the Political Breakdown podcast, which you can find wherever you found the Bay. For some related content, check out our episode of The Bay on the killing of Banco Brown, where we talk more in depth about Banco's life and his desperate search for safe housing in San Francisco in the lead up to his death. We'll leave you a link to that episode in our show notes. This 40-minute conversation with Marisa was cut down and edited by Alexander Gonzalez, who's filling in for us as editor this week. Our intern, Jalen Hernman, scored this episode and added all the tape. Additional production support for this episode from producer Maria Esquinka and me. And I'm Erica Cruz Guevara. Thank you so much for listening. Talk to you next time. Do you love learning about the San Francisco Bay Area? Its history, its people, its unique blend of cultures? Then you should check out The Bay Curious Book. I'm Katrina Schwartz, editor and producer on The Bay Curious Podcast, and I'm here to let you know that for the month of May, we've worked out a sweet deal for KQED podcast listeners. Right now, you can get The Bay Curious ebook for $1.99. That's right, $1.99. Just search for Bay Curious wherever you get your ebooks or find a link in our show notes. This offer does expire at the end of the month, though, so you'll want to act on it fast. Happy reading! Hi there, I'm Randadid Fattah from Throughline. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org podcast. That's donate.kqed.org podcast.